We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of John, and we are still in John chapter 3. Our, our text before us uh, this Lord's Day is John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. To, to get some of that context, we're going to go back to oh, that favorite verse, verse 16, and read through to verse 30. So I encourage you to follow in your Bible as I read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest its deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Thank God for his word. Well, let's, let's look at our passage this Lord's Day and, 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 and see what we can see in the experiences with Jesus and his disciples. First, uh, we see uh, there's a kind of a parallel baptism ministry going on here in verses uh, 22 to 24. In verse 22, we read, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Um, now, after these things, can you I'll always look at those connecting words, what things? Again, remembering where we've just been in chapter 3, Jesus, well, there, he was... He had been to the, you know, Cana, the wedding of Cana, and then he'd, from there he'd gone to Capernaum. That was chapter 2. But then in chapter 3, he came to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, that was one of those feasts where every Jewish male was to present himself in Jerusalem. There were three such feasts in a year. But Passover was a big deal, and it really went on for a, a week. It was, it was also part of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, again, amazing thing. Israel was there in Jerusalem. Couple million people, and so he had many witnesses as he cleansed the temple. 
during that time, uh, casting out the money changers and those who had, who had turned the temple courts, the courts of the Gentiles, into virtually a feedlot. But we learn then Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, no one can do the signs you've done if God is not with him. Well, that tells us Jesus went on during this time of Passover and perhaps beyond teaching and performing miracles. A sign is a miracle that bears a message. So we had the encounter with uh, Nicodemus, uh, a Pharisee, a Jew, uh, a leader. He was in the Sanhedrin, the court of the Supreme Court and Congress all in one. And he was called the teacher of Israel. And so we saw the interaction of them as Jesus explained to him that the essence of religion, true religion, if you will, is is not ritual and external. You must be born again. You must be born from above. There must be a spiritual transformation of the heart. And then he spoke of his own future ministry of being crucified by comparing it to the serpent in the wilderness. Well, after these things, so after that ministry in Jerusalem, In the Passover season, and perhaps for a little beyond, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now, Jerusalem, you could argue, is actually part of Judea, but this is saying he went out into the country of Judea. Um, That was one of the provinces, uh, one of the regions of the ancient uh, Israel. But you might remember, just to kind of put it in perspective, when Jesus, after his resurrection, and before the Holy Spirit, he said, you wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit gives you, comes and empowers you. Then you'll be my witnesses. In Acts chapter 1.8, uh, Jesus said this, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so you see Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. By the way, in modern Israel, that's often the same region that's called the West Bank. And then to the outermost parts of the world. But there you see Jerusalem, kind of a a city. Judea, the larger region. He went out into the Judean region um, for his baptism ministry. I was struck by something this week as I was studying this passage. And uh, I've not seen it mentioned by any other, so I'm sure it's wrong. But I'll go ahead and plant a seed of uh, confusion, if I may, by just noticing something. Study it and see if it means anything to you. If it, but it occurs to me that Jesus, you know that pattern, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the world. Think through the Gospel of John. He's in Jerusalem. Then he goes to Judea. Spoiler alert. After Judea, he goes to Samaria, the Samaritan woman on his way to Galilee, which is often called Galilee of the Gentiles. So Jesus never left that, that, that small area of Israel and its immediate neighborhood. But in a sense, his ministry, as John records, it sort of follows the pattern he gave to his church. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. And that's where we are, those uttermost parts of the world. I'm sure had you gone to the apostles and showed them a map and showed them tarot, they would have said, that's, that, that, that might be on. <laughs> the uttermost parts of the world. So where would they have gone in Judea? It's uh, probably down in the Jordan Valley and by the Jordan River, if not at the Jordan River, because they needed 
water for their baptism ministry. And we're told he, he remained there with them and baptized. Um, when you see phrases like that, notice it would be so helpful, John, if you gave us just the date. And from here to here, here's where he stayed. And, may, and maybe, uh, is it asking too much for some GPS data? It would be so, but it doesn't work that way. However, and we'll, as we get to John 4, hopefully I'll point you to some evidence. It seems like he was in this, reg- this ministry in the Judean region in this baptizing teaching ministry, and that's all that John tells us is what we have here, went from Passover to maybe December. Passover spring, so May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, is what he's doing in this region right now. So this is several months. And this, this is a time for... John gives us very few details. Again, John, fill us in. What was going on? Who came? How long? And he would say, guided by the Holy Spirit, if you needed to know, I would tell you. Move on. But we see that, that aspect of his ministry several months, uh, and it says that he, was, he remained there and he baptized. Again, moving just a little ahead, if you want, go over to John chapter 4, verse 2, same author, same book, just the next chapter, a few verses ahead, we read in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, parenthesis, though... Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. So in our passage, when it says Jesus baptized, he baptized. What that means is it it was his ministry under his direction. But it was the disciples that actually did the baptizing. Not that it was something beneath him. But can you imagine the struggle people would have for the rest of their lives? Who baptized you? Just John. Paul, Jesus baptized me. I'll let you touch my hand. <laughs> you know, and so Jesus baptized none. His disciples did it. But it was his ministry. It was his ministry. So he was there teaching, baptizing. Now, he then, Jesus, or John goes on. Okay, John A, John the Apostle. John B, John the Baptist. Now, John... B was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and they came and were baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we're told John was baptizing in the area of Anon and Salim. That meant something in his day to people. They would have been able to find Anon and Salim, but but we're not exactly sure. There are good guesses, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time telling you the evidence architecturally or archaeologically, etc., but, but every indication would be somewhere in the, the, the Jordan Valley. Um, so somewhere near the river, John, and it says, so John B. was uh, not very close, but not very far from Jesus. So Jesus is in Judea, down by the Jordan River, so probably maybe around the area of Jericho. And northward from there is where John is baptizing. Some would put it up near the bottom, the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, uh, some would say it's east of, of Shechem. I'd be inclined to think maybe he's in the, in the Judean region himself because um, for various reasons. 
If he's as far away, if John is, B is as far away from Jesus as the southern tip, from Jericho to the southern tip of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, that's about 50 miles. Two-day journey in those days. If he was closer, he, he, where he, some people suggested he might have been 20 miles away, a, a day's walk. So just to give you perspective on, on how far away and, and how close these are. We're told also that he was in Anan near Salim because there was much water there. Now, why is that important? Why did he need much water? There's a clue. He wasn't sprinkling. Because if you're sprinkling, you don't need much water. And, and, and again, his whole, the whole concept of baptism is kind of taken from the Jewish system of ritual immersion. And, um, if, and, but they only did ritual immersion for conversion of a Gentile to Jewish, Jesus was saying, or John was saying, you need ritual immersion to display your purification spiritually by repentance. And Jesus was doing the same thing. So this immersion baptism ministry um, there by the Jordan River. And they came and were baptized. So people started going to the ministry of, of John and were being baptized. Now, verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. And I like the way that's translated. I didn't check a lot of the others. The word for thrown is like, like you throw a ball or throw a rock, cast it. It's, it's emphasizing he was not um, ushered into jail. He was thrown into the dungeon. And we show how he is treated disrespectfully. Now, some mention, now, why does John put that here? This, is, this chapter is the last we'll see of John B, mentioned by John A. So why does he mention not yet thrown in prison? I don't know that I'll read all the passages, but let me just kind of snippets of Mark, Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Mark chapter 1, verse 13 talks about, you know, well, Mark chapter 1 says, starting in verse 9, we see the baptism of Jesus then the temptation of Jesus, verse 13. And then verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so if you're just reading through, Jesus baptized by John, tempted by Satan, John thrown into prison, Jesus goes, kind of compressed. Matthew 4, 11 and 12. Speaking of the temptation, then the devil left him, but behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. Luke 4, verses 13 to 14. Now the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So you read those and you think, looks like right after the temptation, he went straight you know, John was arrested, thrown into prison, and Jesus went straight to Galilee. John wants to explain this ministry of baptism by the Jordan. It's before John was thrown into prison. So that tells us Matthew, Mark, and Luke passed over that. Matter of fact, they pass over the entire early Jerusalem ministry. No Nicodemus, no cleansing the temple that first time. Now, months of baptism and teaching by the Jordan. Um, they just pass right over that. And maybe that's why John says, let me fill in some details about that Jerusalem, Judean ministry of Jesus. 
So that's one of these things where you have to be careful in reading the Bible. It's not a contradiction that they don't mention it. It's just, they're not saying it didn't happen. They're just not mentioning it. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you say, uh, so what'd you do today? And then they tell you. <laughs> well, after I turned off the alarm clock, I had bread, I had breakfast, uh, toast, butter, with grape jam. That's my favorite. And, and you start thinking, what have I done? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to know what you did today. So they might just say, well, I, I went to work. Um, nothing happened. Drove safely home. Good. That's great. So the, the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they, they skip over some of these details. John just says, let me, let me fill in. Remember, John's the last of the gospels. Let me fill in some details. You should know about the first cleansing of the temple. The visit with Nicodemus, the baptism ministry. So that's, that's what's going on here. So we see these two then. He's, they, after Nicodemus, Jesus goes and baptizes through his disciples at the Jordan. So there's teaching and baptism and disciple making happening there. Just north, 20 to 50 miles, John the Baptist is baptizing and making disciples. Now, verses 25 and 26. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So um, some Jewish person or persons came to John the Baptist's disciples and they wanted to discuss or Literally, that word for discuss or whatever has the idea of seeking. Uh, we want to talk to you about purification. That was a big deal, especially for the Pharisees. Remember, they got all worked up because Jesus' disciples didn't purify their hands before eating in the, the proper rabbinic fashion. Well, so they wanted to come to John and talk about purification. And, and maybe they were asking, well, whose is better? John's purification, John's baptism, or Jesus' baptism? That kind of sounds like a good, you know, dispute. You know, who's, and, and, and the Jews often did things. Which rabbi has the better teaching? Which rabbi is closer to the actual Torah? Um, and so they may, may have come to John's, John was the most famous at first. And so they may have come to him and said, so let's talk about this baptism. Uh, whose is better, yours or Jesus? Because actually... Most people are going to Jesus now. And so the disciples came to John, verse 26, and said, Rabbi. So again, that's a, a word of respect for a teacher. He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, he's baptizing and people are coming to him. So they're asking, and notice what they say, literally, all are coming to him. Now that's an exaggeration. They weren't going to him. Uh, so that's one of those examples where all doesn't mean all. That's like parents, maybe you've heard that. Mom, everybody is getting one of these. Everybody? Let me call 10 of my friends and find out if they got it. Uh, you know, what do you mean everybody? Well, actually, I can name two people. <laughs> what do you mean by all? But no, it's that, that's kind of an exaggeration, but it shows their... Passion and concern. Everybody's going to Jesus. 
And it seems they're troubled that Jesus is baptizing. The one you, you gave testimony to him. You endorsed him, and now he's off baptizing. Remember, John, you are the Baptist. You are, you know, because he, that was the problem. The Jews looked at him and said, what are you doing? You're using Jewish ritual purification, which we would use it in this way for converting a Gentile, but you're using it with Jews. And he was saying, because Jews need to be converted by repentance and seek the Lord. So John was doing something unique. And now Jesus is doing the same thing. And so, and, and not only that, he's becoming more popular. And that's, that bothers John's disciples. He stole your patented process. And he has more customers. He, he's, he's taken your ministry away from you and, and he's just copying you. And, and, and worst of all, worst of all, you, you actually endorsed him. You did him the kindness of, of pointing him out and saying, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what, what, how does he return the favor? He steals your baptism ministry and he has more people following him. That's the spirit. I'm not saying they were right. And what, what is driving them? I think partly it's a zeal for John, but there's something else. I'm going to read that verse again, and I want you to notice something troubling. Verse 26. And they came to John, that's B, they came to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Something's missing in that verse. The name of Jesus. Jesus' name above all names, sweetest name I know, they won't use it. That shows you their, their disdain for Jesus. That was used, that was, this is what the Jews did in, in the New Testament. And really, uh, the, the rabbis to this day, they don't want to pronounce the name of Jesus. That's their way of showing. They'll call him that one, that fellow. That's what you read through the Gospels. None of the Jews want to use his name. They always, that one, that fellow. John's disciples don't even want to honor Jesus so much that they will speak his name. Does that, you know, so that shows you, and sometimes you'll hear about people like that. Well, you know, someone that has such a conflict with someone. No, don't mention that name in, in the house. Um, Words mean a lot. Right now, for example, in Russia, if you describing what's happening in Ukraine, use the word war, um, that disappears from the social media. We're not going to use that label. John the Baptist's disciples so are upset with Jesus, they won't even pronounce his name. That's troubling. And they, they mentioned, too, that, you know, again, he's, he's, he, you, te- you endorsed him. And this is the thanks he gives you. He's stealing your crowds. What's driving John's disciples? I, I think it's their love and respect for John. They, they, they believe he's a prophet from God, and he is. 
Jesus will say he's the greatest prophet in the entire Old Testament times. But they, they see him being diminished by Jesus. They see Jesus taking his glory. They see his ministry falling by the wayside because of what Jesus is doing. How does John react to that? I, I fear many today in ministry would say, well, let's come up with a new strategy. Let's, let's see if we, what, what we can do. Maybe some of you should start hanging out over there by Jesus and, 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 see, and start talking up this ministry. Notice what John, John lovingly, firmly teaches his disciples and sets them straight. He answered and said in verse 27, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from God. You don't seize, you don't seek glory and honor in serving the Lord. You don't, you don't uh, chase after a position and influence. God gives it. A man can be nothing unless God appoints it to him. It reminds me of, uh, we could look to many passages, but one that really stands out is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul. You know, there was disputes. Who's greater, Paul or Apollos? And that's one of those face plant things. Paul is thinking, are you out of your mind? Paul, Apollos, who cares? It's Jesus. And so here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know, some may say, I'm the smartest guy in the room, and you may be. Where'd that come from? God. God gave you your brain. God gave you your health. God gave you your opportunity. And so Paul was saying, anything you have and are, you know, the, the concept of a self-made man, what folly. And, and that's what John is saying. For, to, you guys you need to understand something here. I'm not seeking position. I have the position God gave me. And you can't be more or less than what God appointed for you. So he said, so, so if John was a prophet, and he was, he was called by God and God enabled him. You don't decide, I'm going to be a prophet. There are people today that will kind of just announce, I'm, a, I'm an apostle or I'm a this or that. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's an appointment made by Jesus Christ. And so he's really concerned. It's not a matter of man, you know, seeking glory, seeking position, seeking honor. It's being faithful to what God appointed us. And every one of us, that's true. We are, what we are and who we are is who God called us to be. Am I being faithful to my call? I don't have to worry about being faithful to your calling or your calling. Am I being faithful to my calling? Am I being who and what God called me to be? And there's lots of callings, you know. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. Uh, I, I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm a teacher of the word. I'm a pastor. You might say missionary. And so many other categories. Am I faithful to my callings? 
And so he wants to be very clear. It's not what, it's not up to man. It's God who makes these decisions. And so then he goes on in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Didn't, you remember what he kept saying? He said, remember my ministry? I'm so encouraged about this as someone who preaches and teaches. Apparently, much was forgotten, or at least not being applied by even John the Baptist's disciples. Don't you remember I told you all the things I'm not? I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the coming prophet. I am not Elijah. I'm simply a voice calling, make ready in the wilderness the way for the one who's coming. That's all I am. I'm a herald of the king, but I'm not the king. Remember, I kept telling you what I'm not. But I've been sent before him. And then verse 29, he, 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 he gives an illustration. Um, and again, that shows him as an effective teacher. Let me, let, me, let me paint a picture for you, gentlemen. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom we might call that the best man, and hears him and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So in other words, I'm just the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the best man. Now, you've been to weddings. And I confess, sometimes you've been to the wedding. We know the bride, so you know, halfway through the service, you're saying again to your wife, what's the groom's name? <laughs> but rarely do you ever say, who's the best man? You know, he, he stands right next to the groom, but, you know, he's, he, that's his job. That and try not to lose the rings. If no one knows his name, that's not a big deal. And, in, and especially in the Jewish wedding, it was the groom who was the, the number one person of importance. So, in fact, in, in the wedding, the most important man, aside from the minister, is the groom. And so the, the, the best man, his, if he, he's a friend of the groom. That's how you get to be best man. The best man's job is to make sure the groom's okay. And, and, and the best man's joy is to see the groom marrying a wonderful and godly woman. And so the, the best man... His joy is not about himself. It's not about his glory. It's that the groom is in this place of this glorious day. The best man doesn't really matter. He's just there. His joy is to see the groom's joy. And so John's saying that's who he is. He says, that's, that's the picture of me. At the wedding, it's not about the best man. And in this scenario, it's not about me. I'm pointing people to the groom. I'm pointing people to Christ. I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, and he might even say, do you remember what I said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world, not me. Not I could see where John might have gotten very excited and very, uh, I don't know the saying here that he did, but I could just see him being upset and being sad and being cross, but I think he's just, he's taken aback as a teacher and saying, come on guys, 
You're upset because Jesus is getting the attention? That's what I'm trying to do, is tell people to follow Jesus. And so he said, just like the, the best man, he doesn't want the attention. He doesn't want people looking at him. He wants the groom to get the glory and the bride. And he said, that, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Are you telling me more people are going to Jesus than to me? Hooray. That's what I was trying to do. It's been often said that a professor's greatest joy is when his student exceeds him in the field. And so often they'll want to point out, that was my student. I taught him. And their great pride is to see their students excel them. Well, in this case, Jesus wasn't his student. But John wants him to get the glory. If I could put it in a, maybe another context, aside from a wedding, you know, we're in the election season. Imagine a, there's a presidential banquet going on. I one time went to a, a prayer breakfast, with, and the president was going to be speaking. And, um, and so I, I was, I was, it was a large event. And so I, I kind of just studied and watched things. You know, you know, had to get there kind of early. And, and you just look and see who the people are that are doing things. Well, imagine there's this great presidential event going on, and, and there's this guy that his job is to make sure every, all the ducks are in a row, and, and he's furiously busy. The last thing he wants to happen on the next day is people, to read in the newspapers all about what he did. He is completely successful if no one knows he was there. Great. Nothing distracted from the president. And John is saying, my greatest success is his success. His joy is to see the Lord Jesus Christ get all the glory. John was a master of humility. And we see that in this context as he goes on and says, he must increase. But I must decrease. That's, that's, that's my calling. That's the purpose. And that word must, is we often call that the divine imperative. This is God's will for him to increase and for me to decrease. It's about him and his glory. When he excels and succeeds, when he gets the glory, then that's my joy. That's humility. Humility comes when our eyes are on the Lord. And really, that's where the health of the Christian life comes from. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce tells the story. Uh, one time they were on this uh, ministry cruise kind of thing or trip. And uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great Bible expositor, was, was among the group. And they went to this um, uh, amusement park. And one of the rides or whatever was this big barrel-like structure that just kind of rolled. And the challenge was you had to, you know, think of a horizontal barrel. And the challenge was you were to walk from one end to the other without falling down as the, ball, as the barrel moved. Well, Donald Gray Barnhouse was adventurous, and so he walked into the barrel. He got about two, three steps in. Boom, he's laying down flat. He got out, and his first words were, I want to do it again. Sounds like, a, sounds like an eight-year-old, doesn't it? Let me do it again. And, and I think maybe people were concerned, well, the ride 
the guy who was running the ride came up and said, let me give you a clue. Look through the, the mirror, barrel. Do you see that mirror over there? Yep. Um, that's so I can, you know, that, that apparently that was so he could watch and make sure whoever's in there was safe. He said, now I'm going to be in my controls. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? He said, I see you. Great. That is what you do. Keep your eye on me in the mirror. That will give you the perspective of where vertical is. So if I start looking off, that should change your step. Get the, get the point? Keep an eye on me in the mirror, and that will get you through the barrel. So with that training, Donald Great Barnhouse, the great Bible expositor, looked straight at the mirror, watched the, uh, the fella, and walked straight through without, a, without missing a step. If you think about it, that's a great picture of the Christian life. What is humility? Get your eyes off you, your feet, your steps. How am I doing this? And just keep your eyes on the Lord. What's the essence of a balanced and successful Christian life that's going to keep you from stumbling? Keep your eye on the Lord. The more faithfully, the more steadily you keep your eye on the Lord, the more faithfully and steadily you're going to walk for the Lord. And that was John the Baptist understood that. So that's why he could say, he must increase, I must decrease. Back in John 1.15, from the very beginning, what did John say? John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. In other words, he was saying, even though John was older, he was born first. Jesus is older because he's the eternal God. But all from the very beginning, he says, I am not what's important, but I'm telling you, the one who is important is coming. Get ready. And so when they tell him, guess what? They're following Jesus. John, you did it. They're following Jesus. And that's why he says, he must increase. I must decrease. And so John couldn't be happier. A.W. Pink, another Bible expositor of a previous generation, said this. Humility is not the product of direct cultivation. You don't get humble by trying to be humble. Rather, it's a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I'm truly occupied with that one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I'm constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then I shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That was John's secret to contentment. It's not about me. That was John, John's secret to ministry. It's not about me. That was John's secret for the Christian life. It's not about me. And the more I keep my eyes fixed on him, the more successful I truly am. The more peaceful I truly am. And the more glory he gets to my great joy. So just some quick thoughts then as we think about this passage with John, John talking about John. John A talking about John B. This doesn't just apply to John in the first century. Do we get that? They're true and vital for us today. So much of conflict, so much of what draws people into conflict with each other, it's grounded in pride. 
me, my way. It's about me. But if neither party is worried about themselves but only about the other, conflict evaporates. So much of unpeace in our own lives. I want, I this, I that. We resent when we're not given the pride and honor we think we deserve. How often have you seen this in the business world? I want the glory. It's mine. I remember in the academic world, when I was at the university, I remember one of my professors, he was giving a lecture, and then he said, now, I want to point out something. I was the first person to see this. I, there's a footnote in one of my articles where I mentioned it, and someone else wrote his article, but I saw it first. And to which I thought, whoop-de-doo. <laughs> Pride. The key is, now do we know? No. Do I get the glory? There's so much more peace between others and within ourselves when we aren't concerned that we get the glory. I like the statement I've heard years ago. The true test of someone having a servant spirit is how do they respond when someone treats them like a servant. If we're worried about how people treat us instead of what the Lord thinks about our service, we're going to have a troubled heart and we're going to trouble others. And so John wants his people to understand, it's not about me. What would it look like in our church if every believer had this attitude? If our only concern was that God's will be done and God get the glory. Isn't the world, isn't church known for conflict can you imagine what a church would look like if every believer here was truly and fully focused? Not my will, but God's will be done. Not my glory, not my way, his. What would it look like if every family had the same spirit? What would our marriages look like if our only concern was God's will be done, God's glory for himself not my way but his too often it's my way my way but if we can meet and say his way amen let's serve him and the first step of his way of course is you can't think that you're going to be good enough to earn God's uh, heaven the first step of humility is to recognize I'm a sinner And to my great humility, God took upon himself my sin. The Son of God bore my wrath that I might be adopted into his family by his grace. That's humility. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, humble yourself and receive the gift that you cannot earn. And for those of, who, of us who are his children, may God give us the grace to be more like John and more like Christ. Our Father, we thank you for this, this great example of John the Baptist. Oh, not a perfect man, none of us are. But how he shows us the path of life 
by focusing on Jesus Christ and his glory and his will, not our own. Father, may that truly characterize my life, our lives together as a church family, our marriages and our homes, our children. Not my will, but thine be done. I pray this, Father, in the name of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.